He is risen, right? <laughs> okay, so when I say he is risen, traditionally in church they say he is risen indeed, right? So he is risen. Okay, can you prove it? Ah, can you prove it? If you could ask God, yeah, he held up his Bible. That's true, you can prove it with your Bible. We're going to look at that this morning. If you could ask God two questions, let's say you had a three-by-five card that you could write your question down on, and it could go directly to him. What might one of those questions be? Maybe two of them. I have a couple. God, could you explain the Trinity to me? Okay, the symbiotic relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, that's a mystery. I'd like to know where Noah's Ark really is. <laughs> I get all kinds of questions from high school students. Some this week, texting questions to me. Number two questions I get from high school students, texting questions to my phone. If God knows everything, and he does, if God knows everything, and he saw that sin was coming and the fall of man, why didn't he just stop the whole thing? Ah, good question. Did you know your high schoolers thought at that level? Interesting question. Here's the second one that I'm most often asked by high school students. How can there be just one true religion? Big question. Here's the number one question I hear asked. I see it in newspapers. I hear it asked of me. As you can imagine in my profession, I'm asked a lot of questions. Number one question, always asked, how can I know for sure that Jesus was indeed resurrected? How can I know that? Now, some of you know that this morning. Some of you are wondering, is it really real? How can I know for sure that he was really resurrected? You see, the truth or the falsehood of every world religion hinges on that one question. If Jesus Christ indeed was resurrected and did everything he claimed to do and everything that he said was indeed true, everything else collapses that stands as truth. But if he was not indeed resurrected, you know, the hinges come off. Christianity is indeed a resurrection religion, a resurrection Christianity. So when the questions about Jesus rise and they step into the theological realm, why was he born? Talking about his purpose. Why did he die? Talking about his destiny. This third one always comes up. Do you personally believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's a huge question. Paul addressed this question just so we're clear on this. The New Testament writers all addressed it. Look at the first one, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless you are still in your sin. But he went on to answer that very question. If he's not been raised, this is what he said in verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, 
By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, Christianity at its very essence is a resurrection faith. Without that, you can dismantle Christianity. Jesus talked about it constantly. Look with me at just three reminders up on the screen. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and what? And be raised up on the third day. John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into Sorrow? No, joy. Why? Because of the resurrection. John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Here's a truth. No other event in the history of the world has been so written about, attested to, pondered, considered as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Another truth. No other event in the history of the world has been so skeptically considered as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we deny the skepticism around it, we're fooling ourselves because there is much skepticism around it. Even those who closely followed Jesus Christ could not believe it. They found it too far outside the realms of their thinking. Look with me first at Matthew 28, 7 up on the screen. We're going to be later in just a few minutes in the book of John, by the way, if you want to find your place there. But I want to take you to it first. Matthew 28, 7, this says, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Now notice the response. Mary and Mary and Mary, and I think there were like four Marys there. It's probably a pretty popular name. And Joanna and Mary again, they show up at the tomb and they encounter this experience in which there's an empty tomb and they don't know what to do with it. And this truth that we just read here is revealed. An angel appeared to them and said, go quickly and tell his disciples So what did they do? Mary burst into the room where they're at. And look what happened. Mark 16, 11. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they jumped for joy, right? They refused to believe it. Now, these are his close followers. They refused to believe it. Can you imagine? She burst into the room Her joy is uncontained. You can see it on her face. He's risen. Yeah, right. Okay, so they won't believe a woman. Perhaps they'll believe a man. Look with me up on the screen. Mark 16, 12. After that, he appeared in in different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others. But what? But they did not believe them either. Okay, so who's the they? Who's the they that are not believing? James? Andrew? 
Peter, Thaddeus, all of them except John. All of them did not believe. So we've got these skeptical followers of Christ who walked with him for three years. This church hasn't even been in existence barely three years. You've heard lots of truth taught once a week or maybe a couple times a week if you come for classes. These guys walked with Jesus every single day for three years, and they heard him say, I will be risen. I will on the third day rise again. They're beyond skeptical. They're opposed to the belief. Apistios, that's a word that you learned last week. Pistios means believe. Apistios means against belief. They're against belief in what they've heard. So what happens? We've got a foot race that takes place now. Peter and John take off on a race towards the tomb. John outraces Peter. He tells us three times, by the way. <laughs> he says, I beat him all the way there. And they take this foot race and they get to the tomb and they find it empty. Uh, scripture tells us that John believed, but Peter went away in dismay and went back to this room to hide out with the other disciples that evening. What they didn't understand was that before the sun ever rose in the east, the sun of righteousness rose from the grave. And they misunderstood what was going on. And so we find them in John chapter 20, verse 19, hiding in a room. Look up on the screen. So when it was the evening of that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Now get the picture. I know if you've grown up in church, a hundred times you've heard this. Well, if you're a hundred years old, maybe. Okay, you've heard it over and over again on Easter and perhaps as growing up in the church. These guys were scared. Let's go beyond scared. They were terrified. They were terrified that the police were gonna come knocking on their door next because they had just killed the master. These are the followers. Perhaps they're going to be killed. So they're locked in this room and Jesus appears in their midst. And what does scripture tell us? In Luke, it says they're terrified. They think he's a ghost. A pneuma, scripture says, a spirit. It doesn't sound like a group of people who are fabricating a story, does it? These are a group of people who have to be convinced. They're not concocting a lie. They're trying to be convinced of the reality of this. Now, eventually, these disciples believe but their belief came hard, very, very hard. So let's start out this morning by looking at John chapter 20 at one of the disciples who had this hard belief. If you have your Bibles with you, great. Open them up to John chapter 20. And if not, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you're new this morning to New Hope, we want you to know, first of all, those Bibles in the pew racks are there for your use, but if you don't own a Bible, We'd love for you to take one with you this morning when you leave so you own a copy of God's Word. We're going to start out in John chapter 20 and verse 24, and we're going to look at someone who's incredibly skeptical about these claims. John chapter 20 and verse 24. 
But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Didymus, uh, Thomas is Aramaic for twin, and Didymus is the Greek version of it. So you see both his names there just mentioned in two different languages. And it appears, we only get two other verses that tell us about Thomas, who this guy is, that he's a really loyal guy. He's very dedicated to Jesus, and he's willing to do what Jesus asked him to do. He's closely attached with him. Look on the screen at John eleven sixteen. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Oh, what's that referring to? That's the point at which Jesus was going to resurrect Lazarus. And he said, come on, we're going to where Lazarus is buried, and I'm going to do something for your own belief. So Thomas says, well, we know that's a dangerous territory. Let's go. We'll die with him. So he's very loyal to Jesus. Look with me at John 14, 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? This is another instance in which Thomas was talking with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm going away from you, and where I'm going, you can't go. And Thomas would say, well, how can we know the way? So we see someone who's spiritually minded. Do you remember how Jesus responded to that question, by the way? Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. That's the response to his question. So Thomas is a guy who's asking questions. He's very loyal. He's dedicated. And he's willing to be there in the hard moments. So that's the background that we get about him. But apparently, he was absent at the first appearance of Jesus. When the disciples lock themselves in the room and they're afraid, the doors are barred shut, Thomas wasn't with them. Thomas was someplace, perhaps, grieving over the shock of Jesus' death. So we find here in verse 25 that the other disciples are trying to convince him Look at verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not pistios. I will not believe. I will not own it. He needs something, something that many of us need today. He needs a physical connection with a mental connection to draw the dots together. I need scientific proof in order to draw this mental conclusion that he's really alive. I need to see the physical evidence. Give it to me. Now notice here the word we. Interestingly, those disciples who were the doubters a week ago because they hadn't seen him, now say, we've seen him, we have seen him face to face. And it says, they kept saying to him. The word is enlon, and it means a repeated process over and over again. Thomas, we've really seen him. We've really seen him. Relentlessly, according to Scripture. And this word, seen, we have seen him. I want you to see the definition for it. Horao, to stare at. I have stared at him. I have made eye contact with him. Isn't that cool? That's their reference. I have stared at him. Thomas, physically, look at the word, to discern clearly. We have discerned. I love the fact 
that the others care about Thomas so much that they go to him to try and convince him. They don't just write him off and neglect him. They go to him and try and convince him. This is real. But here's his response. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, what was it that Thomas could not believe? Was it really only the resurrection of Jesus? Or is there something bigger going on here? You see, throughout the life of Christ, it wasn't only about the resurrection and the death on the cross. It was the claim to be the Son of God. Lazarus had been resurrected. Thomas had seen that. So just resurrection alone, and I'm speculating here, I think isn't his only struggle. I believe that Thomas came to the table with some preconceived ideas about who Jesus was. And the resurrection was a component of it. You'll see more of that in just a minute. But clearly, I believe his past preconceived ideas are blinding his future understanding. And he needs something to help him get beyond that. In the Greek text, there's a double negative here. It says literally, I positively will not believe. I will not own it. And this is after all his friends trying to convince him. I will by no means believe, not only in the resurrection, but the bigger story, that he is who he says he is. You'll see why I draw that conclusion in just a moment. He's obstinate. I understand. If you've done any studying at all about how the Romans carried out crucifixion, you would understand why Thomas is obstinate. Scripture says that the disciples stood at a distance and watched the crucifixion. Now think about this. He has not only been flogged with a cat of nine tails, which if you're not familiar with it, are leather strips with metal and bone, and he was beat within inches of his life. He's not only gushing blood, he's wearing a crown of thorns, blood from his head. He's been beat with rods. He's carried off to a cross in which the spikes penetrate without killing through the bone at the wrist line without severing the arteries and through the legs. Thomas saw all of this. Thomas also saw the Romans take the spear and thrust it into the side of Jesus and saw the blood and water gush out. There is no doubt in his mind there's no swooning taking place. Jesus did not pass out. He died. Romans were very good at crucifixion. By this point in Jesus' life, they had executed over 30,000 criminals by crucifixion. They were very, very good at what they did. So he believes he's developed a personal standard of identifying whether or not Jesus is real. He's asking to see something physical. Look at the word for the imprint of the nails. Tupos, a die as struck, a stamp or scar by analogy, a shape. I want to see the shape of the spike in his hands. I want to see the shape of the spear in his side. Then I will believe. Then I will agree. 
You see, I believe, and I'm not too far off on this, that Thomas had significant advantage over you and I. I want to talk about his advantages over us for just a minute. Thomas's advantages are this. He lived in first century Jerusalem. He had eight days from the time that Jesus was resurrected to the time that he actually was locked away in a room with the disciples when Jesus reappeared again. During those eight days, Thomas had plenty of time to investigate. What kind of things might he have investigated? What kind of things might he have known that you and I didn't know without doing some research? First of all, Thomas, as a Jewish man, understood all the ancient prophecies. Scripture is filled with it in the Old Testament. Do you know that every one of the Old Testament prophecies was fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Every single one of them. Whether they were written a thousand years before or a hundred years before, every single one of them. So Thomas had all the ancient prophecies. He saw the Roman soldiers carry out the crucifixion. So he knew that death really took place. Here's another component. Roman soldiers were detached to guard the tomb, an imperial detachment of the court. Now, I don't know what you know about Roman soldiers, but they're not easily overcome. And when Pilate said, take a guard and post them at the tomb, and they put a seal on the stone, indeed, that was an impenetrable force. As a matter of fact, specifically, we're given this verse here from Matthew 28.4. It says, The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead man. Shook for fear of who? The angel when the angel appeared. Now this word guard is custodio, where we get the word custodial from. Custodio, this is what it graphically means. It implies a fortress or full military line to detain in custody. So we've got Roman guards detaining the dead body and nothing's going to get past them. A full military line. And yet they shook for fear. Now these are things that Thomas would have heard about from the stories circulating during those eight days around Jerusalem. What else would he have heard? Specifically, that there was an earthquake that shook the ground. That there was on the morning of the resurrection what Scripture calls a megas seismos, a severe earthquake shaking. Second thing that he would have known, the stone is rolled away. Now why is that important? Scripture says this was an extremely large stone and it was rolled uphill through a trough. Women, nothing against you, but I'm sorry, the five Marys coming there didn't move that stone. That was a giant rock, moved away. So Thomas heard about this. The grave clothes, when they looked inside the tomb, still wound in the shape of the body with the head cloth folded and set aside separate. Grave clothes still in place. Witnesses who saw this. And now on top of that, Jesus appeared to people all around the countryside by this point in time. He appeared at least 11 times to more than 500 people, we're told, according to Scripture. Last clue. Women were the initial witnesses. Now, you're going to think I'm taking shots at women here, but just trust me, this is a first century illustration, okay? Women were not trusted to be witnesses in court during the first century. 
they were considered to be unreliable. Now, in very rare cases, women were allowed to come into first century court proceedings and give witness, but it had to be something rather mundane, not something significant. So the very fact that women are the initial witnesses goes a long way towards saying these guys would not have used women as an example because they would have been laughed at. They have nothing to gain by lying because they're saying women saw this first. Well, in the first century, you can see why the disciples responded the way they did. Yeah, right. But here it is, authenticated in Scripture. All of this is more than enough evidence to say to Thomas, it's really, really real. And he said, I will not believe. Jesus had to convince the disciples rather forcibly, didn't he? He had to really take them beyond their disbelief. Why? Because they're not gullible. They didn't have preconceived ideas. They were against belief. And so we have the witness here that something extraordinary has happened. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Sunday evening, one week later, eight full days later, Jesus appears again in the room. And this time, Thomas is present. So whether he recovered from the shock of Jesus' death or he's over the grieving point at this place, we don't know. But Jesus came in, the doors having been shut. This is how the Greek reads for that literal sentence. It says this, Jesus comes even though the doors were locked. How could that happen? How could he just move through the walls and appear in the room? Let me show you something very interesting. I want to show you up on the screen, Mark 16, 12. It says, after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them. This is talking about the men who were walking towards the city called Emmaus. They're making their way to the city, and Jesus appears alongside them but they didn't recognize him. So that's why it says, in a different form. Look at the definition for different form. Heteros, meaning different or altered. And the next one, morphe, through the idea of adjustment of parts and the shape. Jesus morphed. Cool? Okay. An altered form, a glorified body one that they could not recognize. I don't mean something weird, a different appearance, a different looking individual, and they couldn't recognize him. So if Jesus is capable of morphing up out of the grave through the grave clothes, what's a wall? Okay, so we see here testimony that this risen one appeared in the room, and he's there for one specific purpose, to meet Thomas, right at the point of his need, to speak specifically to him. And I think at this point, Thomas is probably picking his jaw up off the floor. This one who said, I will not be Dios, is now face to face with the one he said I wouldn't believe in. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Does God know what you're saying even when he's not in the room? 
Ooh. God knew what Thomas's requirements were without anyone telling him. And he specifically spoke right to him with his own test. So he took his test and turned it back on him. And now Thomas is faced with a challenge. Will I really believe what I said I will believe if the test is evident? He's got it right in front of him. So Jesus says, come on, come here. Feel my hands if that's your test. Put your hand in my side. That's your scientific evidence? I'll give you the evidence you need. Pistio, this is the word you learned last week. Look at the definition again. With respect to a person to have faith, by implication to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being to Christ. Pistio, Thomas, do not be a pistios, be pistios. Put your trust in me. Thomas answered and said to him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Can you feel the tossing of emotions? I pistios, my Lord and my God. Why is this so remarkable? If you understand anything about Jewish history, you understand what he just said. Thomas is completely undone. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, if you've read the Old Testament before, there's an element there where Isaiah appears before the throne of God and he has no words. He simply says, woe to me, I am undone because I've encountered the living God. Thomas is undone. And for a Jewish man to call another Jewish man, my Kyrios and my Theos, is forbidden. You do not deify another man. It was under the penalty of death that you attributed God-like qualities to another man. Jews didn't do this. My Lord and my God. The reality of the resurrection is so compelling. He breaks Jewish law. My Kyrios and my Theos. You notice that he never follows through with the test. He never said, I need to put my finger in the hole. He doesn't have to go there. He immediately recognized because of Jesus' voice and what he said, Thomas made the greatest confession that man can ever make, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Can you make that confession this morning? Can you look at that set of circumstances and recognize what Thomas recognized? He is Lord and he is God. Note this. My Lord and my God means a personal relationship. My Lord and my God. Not the Lord and the God. My Lord and my God. At this moment, God talks directly to Thomas again because now he understands it's God talking to me. And he turns to him and gives him a new view. You see, this is what Jesus does when you come to him in faith. He takes you beyond your set of expectations. You come to him and say, just prove it to me. In Thomas's case, physically proven to him. And Jesus takes him beyond 
just the resurrection proof. He takes him to the level of saying, this is God. He took him beyond his unbelief to a new level. And he talks to him directly. Verse 29, I believe he's speaking about you. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Even as a child, I understood this verse. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. Jesus looked forward in a time when there would not be physical evidence and it required faith. So he said, you are blessed because you have not seen and yet believe. Earlier I said to you and I showed you evidence that Thomas had advantages over you because of the physical proof that he could look at. What advantages do you have over Thomas? Well, let's think about it. The most authenticated document in the history of the world, never found to have a flaw. Every single evidence of it, true. You have the Word of God, you have the historical evidence, and the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, that brings conviction. We have three things that Thomas didn't have that we can look into to understand the evidence of this proof. It's an amazing advantage that we have over these early disciples. So John, who's writing this story, who wrote this down to a group of people just like us, who did not have the benefit of looking at the resurrection, this is how he sums it up in the last verse. Verse 30, Therefore, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that what? And that believing you may have life in his name. The event which changed the very fabric of human destiny, that you may believe in his name. That's why Paul could write so emphatically like he did when we look at the book of 1 Corinthians and Acts and 1 Timothy. Look with me up on the screen at Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Here is a truth this morning that you can take out the door with you. When an individual is confronted with this type of truth, you are now responsible before God to do something with this truth that you've encountered. It's called repentance, a change of direction. You're going this way like Thomas with preconceived ideas and Jesus shows up and he's got to do an about face and go this way. That's what the word repentance means, a change of direction, a new thought process. Do you know that it so radically caused repentance, change in direction of these individuals' lives that nearly every one of them gave their life for what they believed in. 
From this point on, Christianity exploded across the world because of the witness of these who personally saw this and understood this is true resurrection. This is real. So here's three facts about repentance, this change of direction. There is an inescapable day of judgment coming. Those of us who have been studying Revelation together over the last few weeks understand there's an approaching moment in time coming. Number two, there is an indisputable judge, Jesus Christ, who came first as the Savior and then coming back as the judge of the world. Number three, God has made this position of this judge evident to all by resurrecting this one from the grave. Indisputable evidence. He resurrected Jesus Christ and exalted him to a place of glory at the right-hand seat of God. Now, you may be wondering, especially if you're new to church, what do I do with this information? How do I process this? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to ask you to do something very simple. Those of us who are believers in this room in Jesus Christ understand where you're at because we've all been there. We've all been like Thomas or like the disciples saying, wow, the weight of this is indisputable. He is indeed who he claimed to be. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. First of all, I just want to ask everybody in the room to just close your eyes. For those who are in this room who are just really struggling with this material, I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning just to raise your hand where you're at and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you just to put your hand up in the air. You can put it back down again. And if you're struggling with this information and you want me to pray for you, identify yourself in that way. If you're at the point where you actually want to give your life to Jesus Christ, you want to identify him as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to also ask you to raise your hand right where you're at. If you've never done this before, don't let this opportunity pass by you. The Holy Spirit is prompting and he's calling for believers in this room this morning. You may just feel really, really empty right now. Your faith perhaps, just because of the pressures of life, and the things that are coming unglued around you may cause you to really wonder, does God really care? I think a major takeaway from this morning is that Jesus met Thomas right at the point of his need. So for those who are believers this morning, I'm going to ask you in a bold step just to stand up right where you're at if you need prayer this morning. Your church family wants to pray for you. Go ahead and remain standing. If there's others who want to stand, stand while I'm praying. And the same for those who raise their hand to identify that they're really struggling with these questions and they're not there yet. I'm going to pray for you as well. Heavenly Father, we have examined your word this morning.
we declare that you have written truth. It's why we celebrate this morning. But Father, there are those who walk right side by side with us. Some who have stood and some who have remained in their seat because the pressures of life are crushing down upon them. So God, first of all, right where they're at at this moment, I ask that your peace would sweep over their soul. Give them that reassurance, Father, that like Thomas, they can declare, my Lord and my God, and you'll meet them right where they're at. Father, for my friends in this room who are struggling with even believing this in the first place, I ask that you bring the Holy Spirit of conviction upon their life, that Jesus is indeed whom he said he was, and that there is no other way to salvation except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together in this room this morning, of exalting your name through song, and lifting our needs before you in prayer. We ask that as we leave this room this morning, that you go before us, opening doors of opportunity that we never imagined before in ways to know you better, so that we can all declare loudly like Thomas, unashamed, our Lord and our God, he reigns. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. If you identified that you need prayer in some way, there's individuals who are going to be up front after the service with a little badge on. If you'll just make your way up here and you'd like somebody to talk to you, or myself, I'll be up here as well. In the meantime, if not, there are refreshments out in the lobby and we look forward to connecting with you. So have an excellent Easter Sunday.